Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. We're going to be starting today's episode a little differently by inviting our guest, Chelsea Hicks, to read a poem that opens her short story collection, A Calm and Normal Heart. Chelsea is an enrolled citizen of the Osage Nation, and she belongs to the Pahuska District, and she'll be reading this poem in both Wajajaia and English. Chelsea, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So we'd love to open up the conversation with you reading the Calm and Normal Heart poem for us, the, the poem that's at the beginning of your of your collection in the original language and in English. Okay, I'd love to. Non se waspe. Non se waspe wita. Hoankishche. Da da oju hunk onigahape. Se hompe onk da ska galo se hompe eko minche. Hoanki ski bread si wita bache no. Ilape eno gako data zani dota hudapa. Kakonta walushonta. Aji nonse waspe. Hoanki etsi kan atsi here. My functional heart, where are you? What turned you into an empty glass? Is it that I love the spiders and am like one wherever I go making my house? I have only to wait and all things come to me and therein break their necks. But a calm and normal heart, where does that come from? Thank you very much. In your author's note, you talk about the Wajaje people revitalizing your language. And can you talk a little bit about how this is currently happening and how a calm and normal heart builds on these efforts or works with these efforts? Yes. So the Osage Language Department is really leading this and strong, really strong work. I take their classes almost every day of the work week. And I just am so grateful that for all the work that the tribe is doing. And The way that people participate in that, you know, by taking classes and doing our best to achieve proficiency. And for myself, I used to work in the multilingual curriculum at UC Santa Cruz, which is focused on helping people learn languages quickly. I also worked at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where I got my MFA just adapting some of the concepts I learned from the applied linguists at Santa Cruz to provide practice sessions for native people to learn their languages more quickly, basically through leisure activities and building in language use throughout the day. And so I wanted to just practice those things uh, myself. And one thing that I really took away from my time at Santa Cruz, because I'm not a linguist, I was just working with linguists is that leisure reading is a huge well-researched supporter of rapid language acquisition and so I wanted to have something to be able for people to do leisure reading in the language if they wanted to and additionally 
pedagogically speaking, if there is um, language beside that's either not translated or that is translated, but you can cover up the translations, my hope would be that the children at Daposka on Kodapi, which means our school, the Osage Nations language focused tribal school, that they could use uh, the, the stories once you know they're sort of at an, reach the high school level in that school for testing or for practicing language. So I just wanted to kind of express my passion for learning this language. And you know, everything that I've done here is just something I wanted to to try as an individual. And I'm just in great admiration of what the tribe is doing with the language and the way people are working to learn it. That's so interesting about the way that that leisure reading plays into language acquisition in that way. I really love that. A a lot of your stories uh, in the collection move from present to past and then back again. Can you talk about the challenges of writing in different generations and why you were drawn to that? Mm, That's a great question. Yeah, I felt that I needed to do that because I don't know if, if you're both familiar with Killers of the Flower Moon book and movie that is set in the 1920s during the Osage Reign of Terror, which was when people, settler people conspired and successfully murdered different Osages to inherit their oil head rights through marriage. And that is becoming more well known through storytelling. But what I noticed when I first read the book by David Grant, Killers of the Flower Moon, was that while there was a little bit shown into the the after effects or the generational trauma and the the Osage people living today. I wanted to show what had happened maybe as a result or influence of that in the 50s, because I felt that some of the way that my family is today and some Osage people I've, I've observed are today is because of just some of these untold aspects of of our history. And so I felt that it wasn't enough to just look at the 1920s. I needed to show the 50s and then today. And I'm doing that, you know, in what I'm writing now, I'm working on a novel that continues the story of Florence and um, her daughter, Laura, which Laura is the, the star of Full Tilt and Florence in A Fresh Start. As for the difficulties, I think that it takes more thinking and time and care for me to get in the the minds and the interiority of people who lived in a different time than I've lived because there's less shorthand for just the daily life that I live that I have in common with other people alive today. So that's the only part that I think is, it just takes more care. I have to kind of sit there and think through things like, oh, how would this affect, how would this rotary phone affect the moment and <laughs> but it's pretty fun you know I feel like I'm time traveling and I just take my time so that the world is well made that's so great to to hear we're going to get more of Florence and and what it, what has that been like for you moving from linked short stories to something that's significantly longer has that been a big kind of mental change for you or, or a reference change well I I don't know it might be the effect of you know the way that literary training in schools focuses so much on the short story in terms of teaching 
because I started working on this novel in 2016 and I worked with different teachers when I was at UC Davis, Yoon Lee was one who had a big influence on the efforts I was making toward craft and character. And so when I went to the Institute of American Indian Arts, I was still working on the novel until the very last semester. And then I just, I was tired of it and I had other things I wanted to think through and say. So I started writing the short stories kind of with abandon. And the, some of the short stories were ones that I had been working on but hadn't finished um, for years. And so that the short story collection just came together very quickly, crystallizing some things around. I, I felt like it's really about taboo topics and, and dysfunction and the question of healing. So it just came together really quickly at that time because of I was living in Pawhuska and teaching at Dapaskong Kodapi. And I had recently gotten divorced and it was just kind of a lonely time for me. And so I was just, I don't know, it just came together really quickly. But the novel, perhaps it's just, I haven't written so many novels as I've written so many short stories. Maybe it's just taking a while longer to fully develop. I wonder if part of what you're saying is why, you know, we saw a lot of these wonderful, messy, imperfect, and uncertain women as characters in your story is that, but it sounds like what, what appeals to you about this type of character? Is it just sort of like the chaos of life or the chaos of kind of this history or, or what draws you to these women? Well, when I think about, I mentioned taboos before, like the opposite of a taboo is what's socially acceptable or what's, um, like desired and wanted in the projection of a personality, a person. So when I think about, I mean, I don't want to like put it on tribes because I don't think it's just about tribes. I just think it's kind of our culture today. And as I've experienced it in the United States and the places I've lived, it's really focused on veneer, like a presentation of veneers and the need to present respectability, a semblance of functional family, of care, of contributing to the world of being normal. And when people have undergone generational trauma or there's some type of family dysfunction, you know, I think that this imperative to present a veneer is the huge impediment to acknowledgement of the issues and some type of genuine healing because you know if you have to say that you know oh I, I love my parents and they're great parents and we're a good family and we have and you have to you can't acknowledge any hidden issues or problems in a family structure it makes it almost impossible to, to change what's going on in any abuse or dysfunction yeah I think that that's what attracts me to those types of characters is that most people, there's something going on that you don't want to talk about or write about because it's too sensitive or difficult or confused or traumatic. And I just wanted to write straight into that. Even though, you know, usually I think what I see in terms of Native values is that you want to take care of your family and you want to protect your family and stay together. And 
I think that that was such an interesting um, tension for me in the idea of, okay, so we want to protect our family and, and to practice our culture, but what if people in our family haven't healed from abuse they've undergone in boarding schools and they are acting in an abusive and inappropriate manner? How do we stop protecting problematic people and abusers and try to deal with our problems without losing th this imperative of a veneer and of presentation? So I don't know. I don't really even have answers to those questions yet, but I was just kind of obsessed with that dynamic. Yeah, I think it's really interesting hearing you, you talk about like these these family history dynamics too, because one of the places I felt like I was seeing that in the collection is the influence of of grandmothers in particular feels like a really strong presence in a lot of these stories. Could, could you talk a little bit more about why that was important? Yeah, I don't know if I have a good kind of broader answer, but for me, when I was nine years old, my maternal grandmother moved in with us uh, after my grandfather died. And so it's my mom's mom and she was just always there. And she was, she became friends with my paternal grandmother, my, my dad's mom. And they had both learned Palmer method cursive. They had both gone to Catholic schools. They were both raised, you know, in the same basic time period. And they were really strong presences in, in both of my lives. And because of that, we, I wrote letters with my, with my eco, which means grandmother, and she lived in Bartlesville. And I would stay with her during the summers for weeks at a time. And she, she taught me to be proud of being Osage, even though where I lived in Southern Virginia, I felt like that was just kind of a joke. I was like, why do I have to be native if I live here in Hampton Roads where like the most important thing is like penny loafers and Argyle and being Christian. And this is just a disaster for my identity. And I just, I was just mad. I was like, why? <laughs> my dad had considered moving us to the reservation for a job he was offered there, but my mom leaving her job, they didn't think they would, you know, have enough to support uh, our family and my grandmother as well, um, who, who lived with us. And so I think that I, like growing up, I just had so many, such a strong interior life. And my maternal grandmother, she gave me this diet, this journal, and she was like, Chelsea, I just want you to write everything down. And I, I don't even remember that. I think I was five. She told me that and she said, and you just wrote constantly. So I think that my grandmothers were just kind of like these guiding forces for me through my life. And they influenced me so strongly that, you know, the values that they had, even if they were outdated, like I wanted to find a way to save what they taught me or adapt it to life today and carry it on. And I don't know. It's just, they, I think I just had such strong friendships and bonds with, with my grandmothers so that there was no way I couldn't be inspired by, you know, that role. 
That's beautiful. And I love this idea of just writing constantly. And I just feel like we really see the power of your writing, but you've also done a lot of other things. You're doing a lot of other things. You mentioned teaching at the, at the school, you've done some journalism, you're a physical artist, you're a model. That's a lot of really creative, but really varied things. And you've got this, this cool portfolio on your website of your modeling. Can, can you tell us a little bit how you got into modeling and maybe how do these other forms of creativity that uh, I mentioned sort of inspire one another? Yeah. When I was in college, I had friends who were photographers and they just need people to be in shoots. And I got into this idea of styling shoots where you kind of create an aesthetic and a story. You find the clothing, um, you kind of develop a character in a way, and it was just such an outlet, a creative outlet. And as I went on to professional life and trying to make money in various jobs and figuring out where I could kind of fit in, I, um, I didn't have that outlet as much. And so I started focusing on music more and I had bands and I stopped doing that in, I think, 2018. And then there was just kind of this void of like, I I needed creative outlets um, to just, you know, kind of as my positive coping mechanisms. And so I started, I I had a friend, um, Desba, who is an actress in Dark Winds and in, um, in other film and television. And I had met her at IAIA. And she told me that Indian Market Swaye, Indian Market Swaye runway show was looking for models. And I was like, oh, I'd love to do that. So she just took some, snapped some pictures of me on her phone. And they just are looking for, the Swaye show is just looking for native, native people, you know, who, because they want to contribute to representation. And I loved this idea of me having always felt like a freak for, being like light-skinned native, that I could kind of do something positive around my identity and representation, which at the same time puts a really heavy emphasis on the need to reduce fraud and ensure that there's no fraud with native identity because native people are becoming more diverse and mixed today. But for me, it was positive that, you know, I could just kind of be proud of who I was and what I looked like, that it wouldn't be limited to just because I have European phenotype, which is problematic because like the fashion industry is already kind of way in proportionately promoting that type of, of look, but that native fashion in general could be inclusive of every group of native people, whether, you know, they're presenting as, as black or if they're being misread as, as Latin X or whatever it is. And so th- that community of, of creativity and, and the shared passion of representation really inspired me. So I, then I did something with Teton Trade Cloth at their fashion summit and just helping people locally. I live in Tulsa and so there are a lot of tribes near here and it's just something that I think I can do to promote native joy. and. As for the visual art, that was just me kind of being at a, uh, hitting a wall with Wajajaya in our language that I, I really wanted to write a poetry collection, but 
I kept hearing from people in our tribe, like, we're not really ready to fully revitalize our language. We're not ready. And for me, I, I was like, man, I just, I had been coming from this, you know, environment of, of linguists that are like hardcore rapid revitalization and learning all these things from different, different people, um, different linguists and about how you revitalize language quickly. And there was like some of these methods were so extreme and they didn't necessarily deal with the, the hesitancy or the, the politics, the dynamics, the forces, the identity markers in the community that kind of just prevent revitalization and make it really difficult. And I'm working on an essay on this now, but I just started painting these poems because I thought I want to give amplification to our language and I want to use kind of the, the energy of color and, and shape to just contribute toward revitalizing it, even though if it doesn't even do anything. Um, so I've been making these paintings for different people, but I ask them in the community, what do you wish you could say in Wajajaya? And I'm actually finishing the last, the very last one and I'll give those out soon. So I guess it's really about community, the, the fashion and the, because writing can be very like a closed club. You have to have a lot of education and publications to kind of get into that community as a published writer. And so I think I just needed more spaces for connection. That's really cool. I, I, I was actually going to ask you about the poetry collection. So is that something you kind of put on hold in favor of doing the paintings and these other things that maybe feel more community oriented to you? No, I'm still doing the poetry okay. collection. It's just that I realized that first I was doing it with a sense of like a European poetics and just using our language. And I thought it would be enough to have the actual correct structure and kind of the inherent worldview in the language. But then I realized that stylistically and in terms of poetics, it's going to be sort of like a disappointment to me and to our language if I don't work to develop a Wajajaya poetics that comes from our own orality and our, it's considered taboo to study our rites and rituals from the past, but at least to understand some of the, the poetic format. And if we have to develop a completely new poetic format today that isn't based off of our past of basically what have been our old poems, then I don't want that new thing to just be like a Europeanized Anglicization. And, you know, no, no one, not no one, but my teachers and leaders in our community, you know, for the most part, nobody really wants that. So I feel that there's like, for me to show respect toward what we're doing collectively, I don't want to jump the gun. And I just want to, so I'm writing a lot, but I think it's better for me to wait, you know, even though, and keep working toward it and maybe publish some poems here and there as I keep going. Yeah, it seems like it'll be a really, really long process, but one that'll be a really interesting way to engage with the language as you learn more and more of it. Absolutely. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been really great hearing about your book and what you're working on now. Um, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, Kara, it was really nice uh, to connect. And thanks for this time to, to talk. It was a pleasure. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. 
Call for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.